Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. I just want to say thanks very much for all the iTunes reviews. They've been very helpful, and please keep them coming. As always, you can find us on Twitter at at elucidationspod, and you can check out our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. One other thing I wanted to mention is that since August, we've been doing our hosting through a new startup called Pippa, which is pretty cool. It's actually founded by some former philosophers, and... I have to say, I've been very impressed so far. The service is totally free, provides detailed analytics, makes it very easy for you to migrate from your previous host to them. So all in all, it's been a very positive experience, and it's enabled us to get much more detailed stats on who's listening and when. So if you have a podcast and you're looking for a hosting service, you might check them out. They can be found at pippa.io, P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Christy Dotson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Michigan State University, and she's here to discuss epistemic oppression. Christy Dotson, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So this, you know, epistemic oppression, it's made of two words, epistemic and oppression. Oppression, we probably have some idea what that is. Epistemic Maybe we can begin with an explanation of, uh, of what exactly that means. So I take epistemic to mean anything of or relating to knowledge. And, you know, what I mean by that is you can hear epistemic in front of a lot of things. In, for example, a feminist epistemology talk. People talk about epistemic exploitation. Nora Berenstain at University of Tennessee did a talk on this that's really very interesting and important. That talks about the ways in which people can ask for folks to explain things over and over and over again without really any kind of intention of learning it, but just expect people to explain and explain and explain that she's going to call exploitive. But what's exploitive about it is that they keep trying to seep knowledge away from them. So she's going to call it epistemic exploitation, right? Not because it's about a theory of knowledge per se, but because it's it seems to be related to whether or not I possess some bit of knowledge, right? And so there's um, all different kinds of ways to employ or deploy the term epistemic when it seems as if whatever we're talking about is related to knowledge in some particular way and maybe some theoretical way. Um, that's a term we tend to use. And I think it can be used in narrow and wider senses, but I have a very wide sense, you know, anything of related to knowledge. So you mentioned feminist epistemology, and that's very interesting because I think, well, you know, what's feminism? Uh, I think we often think of that as it's something like the political struggle for women's rights and maybe equality of the sexes. And you might wonder what that has to do with assessing evidence and forming beliefs and coming to know things. Mm -hmm. Um, Aren't those kind of two separate, like there's what a detective does and they try to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. That's one set of issues. And then there's like, oh, you know, women should have equal pay. And that's another set of issues. So what is it that um, people look at in feminist epistemology? So that conception of feminism, I think, is one that usually people bring up when they think about feminism, but that's probably too narrow. It is the one that I think comes up in the intro to women's studies class. We were like, well, if you think that... (laughs) 
women should get equal pay. You're a feminist. Well, you know, it actually it gets there's far more details to, be, <laughs> to what it would mean to, to be uh, some of the ways in which it would mean to exist as a feminist. I'm not going to say that's not a feminist position because, I, you know, I think it is. But I think it gets to be a very complicated position when one identifies oneself as a feminist, particularly as a feminist academic. Right. We've done some serious study about this. And we realize it's more than just a set of political commitments. It's also a set of methodological concerns, particularly in philosophy. It's whether or not the ways we're understanding the world, the ways we're uh, conducting our philosophical investigations and the targets of our analyses, whether those things are actually bearing out information that actually fully robustly addresses all portions of our population, particularly in including women gender nonconforming people and trans populations, right? So that's more than just equal rights. That is, do these tools, and it's a specific investigation of, you know, philosophical tools, actually get at all of the things that we actually want to know about and understand, given the full robust diversity of our populations, right? So when you think about a feminist epistemological position, that's essentially what they are saying, is that there's been a tradition in epistemology that has confined itself to certain kinds of questions, necessary and sufficient conditions for knowledge, S knows that P propositional knowledge, and many ways, what is knowledge? Justified true belief models. And the question that many feminist epistemologists ask is a first, you know, kind of meta epistemological one, which is, are those good methods for understanding knowledge? And one way to test that is to see whether or not it turns up what should be considered true belief that has a non-accidental relationship between the fact that it is true and the fact that I believe it. For women and what we would actually understand about our worlds, does it confirm the things that we experience? And if the ways in which we understand justification or even the way we understand knowledge or justified true belief doesn't bear out what we experience in our world, then the, then the tools have to be thrown out. So lots of feminist epistemologists got to a point when in the beginning of the inquiry and kind of thought that maybe propositional knowledge as S knows that P wasn't as useful as knowledge production um, questions about what does it mean to produce knowledge in, in communities of knowers, right? Um, that can actually get at some of the power dynamics it comes to what does it mean to be a knower? What does it mean to be taken as a knower in your landscape or not taken as a knower? How does that impact whether or not you are possessed it, but more importantly, whether or not people will attribute it to you? Whether they'll say, yes, indeed, Christy knows X or Y. What are the conditions for those kinds of things? And those are the questions that they wanted to ask and answer. And what happened is that particular change, you know, that turn from not just what is knowledge, because they're still interested in that, but how it's produced, you know, ended up being called something like feminist epistemologies. You know, that's also an inquiry that comes up in science, what it means to have scientific teams, what it means to conduct science and collaborative formations, but also what it means to be part of the community where you need people to listen to you in order to free your opinions and your understandings of the world, more than just opinions, in order for your understandings of the world to bear on anyone else. So in the end, I mean, I think the questions that feminist epistemologists started asking were questions about knowledge, epistemic, right? But broadly had the litmus test of do those epistemological theories and these epistemic inquiries actually cover robustly the populations that exist. Nice. So yeah, you might think these are sort of two separate things. You might think that, well, you know, what are the principles on the basis of which we can effectively use evidence to corroborate hypotheses or something? That's one set of questions. And you might think, uh, well, you know, 
eliminating gender-based discrimination is another set of issues, but they come together or they can come together if we view sharing knowledge with each other as a collaborative activity and if certain groups of people are sort of like systematically don't have the same clout to share knowledge with each other as others. Right. That's where these two topics can come together. That certainly is one of the areas, yes, yes. So you've been really interested in your work in some of these uh, cases of epistemic oppression, which is the topic of today's discussion, where certain groups of people's ability to participate in the gathering and sharing of knowledge is systematically undercut. What are some examples of that? Well, you know, so it's important to understand about, you know, something like epistemic oppression. So we got the epistemic in place. And so the oppression, and let's give a sense of what, you know, the oppression side is. I think that one way to think about this, and there are many ways to think about oppression, um, and certainly the epistemic oppression that will result. One way to think about oppression is to think about oppression as what Marilyn Fry called the double bind, where all the options that you have available to you are actually terrible options, right? I mean, you could either do some action or some other action as a result of a particular situation, but both action A and action B are equally as bad. She's going to say when there's these setups, these circumstances in the world where any action available to you is always already a compromised situation, you're facing oppression. So to think about epistemic oppression a certain, in terms of the double bind is to say that there are some situations with respect to knowledge where one finds oneself in a compromised position no matter how one goes about it, right? <laughs> that actually there's going to be a problem with respect to knowledge that is going to result. And so some examples of that, because that's not as clarificatory as I would like. So some examples of that. One example, I guess, and I'll give you an extended example, is what I use in my work. I use Patricia Williams' example, one that she uses in her work in The Alchemy of Race and Rights, about a trip she'd made to a Soho shop where at the Christmas season, she wants to go and buy a gift at a shop in Soho. And so she goes to knock on the door and the person who is working in the shop kind of takes a look at her, looks at her up and down and says, we're not open. Right. It's Christmas season. There are people who are shopping in the in the actual store. And Apparently they're clearly, all employees or something. Right. Exactly. And it's and the closing hours are clearly have not been met. Right. So the store is open, but they're not opening the store for her. Right. In this moment, you, she's going to say this was a moment where she encountered racism. They looked at her. They saw she was black. They thought, you know, this person is not going to probably buy anything. So, you know, better that we just not let her in the shop. Now, of course, she was going to buy something. She's a law professor. And it, that shouldn't really be a contingent feature about getting led into a shop anyway. However, <laughs> she's going to say that the story was bad. But the reception of the story was probably worse. So when she tried to use that as an example of her experiences with racism, the response that she received from people was probably as bad, if not worse, than the actual experience with racism. Because people were like, no, that wasn't racism. Every time she talked about it with someone or talked about shared it with a large class, there were these responses from people who largely were not themselves African-American as well, who would say, no, that wasn't racism. There are a thousand other ways we can explain this. You know, we can explain it this way. We can explain it that way. Why choose racism? Um, the fact that she was the only black person <laughs> in that whole exchange and there were white people in this shop and she was outside of it, it was just not enough, you know, for people to imagine that that was racism. 
Now, why would this be, I think, an example of epistemic oppression? And it, be clear, the example of epistemic oppression is not the experience of racism. It's the experience she had in retelling the story and the incredulity she reached that her audiences exuded towards her. Like, oh, that can't be right. Can't be right. Now, you know, it's, this may be a newsflash for some people, but there's racism in the United States. And black people experience it fairly often. And then one of the things that is interesting about our experience of racism is um, the fact that we can see it, but should we try to share it indiscriminately with audiences that may not have similar experiences, they can't see it. You know, they'll come up with a thousand different explanations for it besides the one that you've come up with, the one that seems consistent with the rest of your experience, you know, in the world. The idea of this as a kind of epistemic oppression, you know, comes back to the difficulty that Patricia Williams, that Williams is going to have explaining it to other people, but also what that means for how other people understand the world. Because if she can't explain to them that her experience was racism, then they can continue to believe that racism, should they believe this, something that like racism rarely happens and the instances of it are not nearly as everyday as Williams is trying to evidence, right? She was like, these experiences of racism are actually everyday. Everyday experiences with racism would become difficult to share with populations who don't have experiences with racism, right? And what that means is their understanding, not my understanding of racism, because, you know, and everyday conceptions of racism, but their understanding of everyday conceptions of racism would actually be malcalibrated for the world, <laughs> right? They'll have this sense that racism is not nearly as pervasive as it is, but I will also have no ability to explain that to them as somebody who has access to the fact that it is as common as one might seem, right? So you find yourself in a situation where you can't, even though you have the experience, you probably have the justified true belief to say that this is this kind of thing. You can't share that with anyone else who might need to know that in this particular landscape because they don't believe you. Maybe they, like Fricker said, they don't trust your credibility. Maybe they just don't want to believe the world has racism in it. Maybe they're, you know, slightly racist and they don't want to imagine that kind of action as racist because that's something that they might do. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why they might want to resist it. But in resisting it, they construct an understanding of the world that is, I'm going to say patently false, but you can't change that with them. You can't explain it to them. You can't testify to it, right? And you can't, by virtue of that, influence them as community members towards what would seem like be the truth, right? And that causes significant amount of harm. And this is the part where I think people like to balk. It causes harm primarily because the more people who imagine that racism doesn't exist, the more people's experience with it are disavowed. But not just that, the more they testify to it, the more their credibility gets challenged. So their credibility is challenged in the first place. No one wants to believe it. But the more you testify to it, the more your credibility actually ends up being lessened. And so over time, either you don't testify to it because you don't want your credibility to actually be compromised or you do testify to it in the off chance you might convince somebody that your experience is a real experience. But in doing that, you run the risk of having your credibility continue to be challenged. So you testify to it because you want people to understand that racism exists so we can all work on it. Or you don't testify to it because you don't actually want your credibility to continue to be lessened and you need credibility in our communities because people don't listen to you necessarily without it. <laughs> so you're in a moment where you're in a double bind. Either you testify to racism 
and run the risk of your credibility being you know, lessened or you don't testify to it and you leave the imagined, the phantom understanding that racism is a less pervasive problem than it is to prevail, right? Neither one of these are actually wonderful options. And they're related to knowledge in the community. Who knows, who can know, who can be seen as a knower and what some people can't know. Great. Yeah. So this example is nice. It, it's, uh, I think, kind of a slam dunk case of epistemic oppression because somebody's ability to provide evidence and share knowledge that they have is being undercut. But it also exhibits this double bind feature that you mentioned, whereby if the person does nothing, well, they, for one thing, continue to let it happen, which is right. which is the pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they also, if they don't say anything about it, they contribute to this impression that maybe other people have to whom this doesn't happen, that it doesn't happen. Exactly. But then if they do say something about it, given the way this kind of testimony is usually dismissed. Right, exactly. It's usually received by people. There's like no convention of not dismissing it. Right. So you're kind of in a heads I win, tails you lose situation. Right, exactly. I mean, so one term that people sometimes use for this is uh, gaslighting, Uh, this term for when a person tries to talk about some kind of prejudice they've experienced and the person to whom they're speaking, you know, is a little bit incredulous and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wants more evidence, right. um, no matter how much evidence they're given. That's right. Um, no matter how much. Hasn't there been some research on this to suggest that the experience of having your observations about the prejudice you've experienced discounted in this way is actually more painful than the original prejudice? Yeah. Well, you know, depending on the prejudice, <laughs> it depends on the, what results from it. But I, yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say there are different kinds of pain. And I think that they also have different kinds of frequencies. So you have the moment where you're, you know, you feel like you've been treated poorly on the basis of race, you know, gender, class, sexuality, and any range, disability, any range of isms in our society. You have that moment. And then you have the reverberation of that moment whereby the people you would expect to help you maybe combat the continued persistence of those moments challenge the very existence of that moment at all and the predictability of that if epistemic oppression is operative that will keep happening again and again and again every time you tell the story to any new crop of people (laughs) there will be someone and maybe all of the someones in that population who will come and say this didn't happen or there's lots of explanations I can give for that besides that. And I think it's the persistence of it. They call it you know, the microaggressive nature of it, the death by a thousand cuts kind of conception of that, that the moment of racism can be you can have many of those in a day. But should you try to testify to those, for example, the kind of Soho example, should you try to testify to those, what you can expect is the constant cutting of disbelief and the constant sense that what it would mean to have a community rally behind you and attempt to address these in either, you know, this situation or in another is a futile hope. So I think that to call it painful, I think it's all painful. I think that they both instill a kind of hopelessness, but the kind of hopelessness you can get at the end of, an, you know, of realizing that epistemic oppression is something that is persistent. It is something that would be, if it's existing, it's widespread. It's something predictable. Um, and it's something you can expect as a common experience, as the norm and not as the exception. That gives it a different character insofar it's about remedy, it's about redress, but it's also about possibility. Is this, is this situation ever going to change if I can't explain to you what's even happening? 
You know, I mean, if I can't, I guess at that particular point, I mean, is it ever going to be addressed if I can't explain to you it's really happening? And I think that, sure, because there's going to be communities of people who are going to know that racism exists. They're the people, the other people who actually experience racism, most cases, you know, and then they'll have their own community resources that will be important. But there is a degree to which that doesn't mean that their ability to see, understand, conceive of resistance strategies is going to spread to the population that doesn't know anything about it and, quite frankly, might be the main perpetrators of it, right? So I think maybe I'm a little bit under the influence of my colleague Emily Dupree here. Mm -hmm. But my first take on that kind of situation would be that what's happening there is there's an inconsistency in what standards of evidence the person having the incident in Soho recounted to them is applying. So if you like change the example a little bit and it was, oh, my God, I was walking through probably not Soho. I -hmm. was walking through wherever (laughs) uh, late at night, you know, my bag was stolen. Mm -hmm. That's something that's considered like, you know, sort of more routine and Generally, when somebody recounts a story like that, they're not going to be questioned. They're not going to say like, well, wait a minute. Did you look like you were giving them your bag or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, how do you know that it really was a theft? It instantly it's taken for granted that, oh, yeah, there was something that happened. It was a theft. And you don't have to provide a ton of evidence for it. You can just say this happened. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the case of something like reporting on a prejudice, it's like the standards of evidence get raised. Sometimes to the point where they're like impossible to meet, yeah. where it's like, well, I'm not going to be convinced that this was racism unless we can, you know, apply telepathy or something and read the mind of the person and make sure that they were thinking racist thoughts or something. Right, right. And so That's do you right. Think- <laughs> no, I think that's right. It's something that I certainly believe is something my book project, Varieties of Epistemic Oppression, tries to tease out. There are many different kinds of, of epistemic oppression. Right now, we're just looking at the broad phenomena. I think that it can result from, you know, the way a skeptical hypothesis actually ends up I mean, yes, I think that you can ratchet up levels, um, expectations for justification, whether it be evidentiary or, or whatever, that actually would make it so that the standards for knowledge and what it would mean to fulfill a standard for knowledge are so high that, you know, we could never possibly meet. And like what, you know, as Emily Dupree saying, um, would say, and I know I would say this, and in my book project, Varieties of Epistemic Oppression, I certainly do say this at one point. In those moments, it operates something like it's just skepticism. Like if I'm skeptical of the position that you're offering, then you're going to have to do more to convince me that what you're saying is justified true belief, that it's knowledge. Right. And the more skeptical I am, the more you're going to have to try to convince me. And but it's not just that. I mean, some versions of skepticism can just be washed away. And I think it's also about who's making the knowledge claim. You know, it's not what's changing those standards of knowledge it's not only the circumstances, it's not only that it's an instance of racism, but it's also a black person, right, who may have some, what people think, imagined vested interest in keeping the idea of racism alive. And there's all these phantom mythologies about how much fun that is to do. Because <laughs> they, it isn't fun. But I think that you could, you know, you imagine all the ways in which people try to explain away, well, of course you're going to say it's racism. You're black, you're a black woman, so you're sexism. But I, you know, all of those things can serve as levers on standards for justification, where then you have to perform unusual feats of clairvoyance just to say, yes, indeed, there was a racial intent. It's also the case, I think, that sometimes when we think about these circumstances, when we think about, you know, who can make these claims. I like the example of the theft 
of the robbery. Because I don't think that it's equally as easy for everybody to say I was robbed and then not be questioned about what you were doing. I think in many conversations, if you're a woman and you get robbed, they're like, well, were you out at night? (laughs) You know, and there's this blaming the victim structure whereby you could have, I don't know, imagine the world in which somebody was coming to rob you when you should have been able to avoid it. And the fact that you didn't is a problem with you. And the ways in which we can find ourselves in these situations, I think this also happens with in sexual violence, right? I mean, you can find yourself in these moments where you try to testify to an experience with sexual violence and, you know, the the level of justification and evidence you need for something like that can be extraordinary and they can map along a whole bunch of lines. So I think that a lot of this is mapping onto the consistency of, across all of these alternative cases about whether or not being robbed, you know, subject you to being blamed how many standards of evidence you have to actually fulfill for a sexual harassment. We'll do sexual harassment better. Sexual harassment, you know, you got to be in the harasser's mind and things like that. And the same thing about an instance of racism is that there's social injustice at the base of these, right? There's something about the ways in which one's gendered identity in being robbed, one's experience as the harassee and being harassed, and one's experience with racism actually map on to certain different kinds of and similar kinds of social injustices that actually mean you have to, in an instant, prove it as a manifestation of a larger phenomena, right? It's not to say that racism doesn't exist. It's just how do you know that was a manifestation of it? It's not to say that, you know, sexual harassment doesn't exist. It's just how to say that that's a manifestation of it, right? So there's that part of the lever on the evidence is how do you make this general thing manifest in this particular instance? And one of the ways to think about how we do that is we testify to it. I was there. (laughs) But if that's not going to be enough, how are we going to take this general idea of what could possibly exist and make this an instance of that possibility? Right. It becomes extraordinarily difficult. And something like epistemic oppression really thwarts that because people can concede they do. Racism does exist. That just wasn't an instance of it. (laughs) Right. And also, I mean, it's not possible to be there for all of racism. No, right, right. To testify no to. you can't. No, you absolutely can't. You cannot. But, you know, it's also, I think, interesting. But I think this is where you, we start to see the real flaw of epistemic oppression. You can't be there for every instance of racism. But if you concede something like racism exists. And so I've been giving the tough case, which is people who don't even concede that and then can't actually see any of the instances. But let's say you concede something like racism exists then you've got to imagine that some people have routine and consistent experience with it. These people will still be the ones that say that that wasn't an instance of that. Oh, I'm not saying racism doesn't exist. That wasn't an instance of that. So what actually epistemic oppression with these problems with knowledge can actually end up doing is really thwarting our ability to calibrate our understanding of the existence of racism with the manifestation of it, right? By actually denying the relationship between the fact that I exist in this black woman body And by virtue of that existence, I see this a lot. (laughs) So if there's an expert on this, it might be someone who looks and sounds and acts just like me. But that's denied, right? And that's a non-accidental epistemic feature. And what I mean by that is if you deny me the ability to know about my own experience with this, my ability to identify this manifestation of this larger phenomena in this particular moment, then you are actually epistemically oppressing me. I should know that. (laughs) 
If racism exists, does anti-black racism exist? And I should have some sense of how it exists, if it does, right? I mean, I think that, but people who would acknowledge that would still say, but why do you get to tell? Because I live in a black woman's body. (laughs) And if we're conceding something like anti-black racism, then the problem between your ability to understand that I can speak to that and your understanding that it exists is an epistemic problem. You have somehow denied me the this ability to know something about something you've actually acknowledged the existence of, right? Yeah, I, I like adverting to the language of expertise here because there's an interesting analogy maybe that carries over. So if you're watching an expert, I don't know, whatever, on the news talk about their latest finding or something, you know, you grant them a fair amount of authority and you think, oh, yeah, this person, like, did a bunch of research. I didn't do the research. Right. Uh, they probably, if they claim that XYZ is the case, they probably have a good reason for it. Right. You can do that without granting them, like, complete omniscient godlike That's authority exactly that you have right. to believe every single thing they say. That's exactly you can right. like by default presume that eh, they probably, you know, it's probably pretty good evidence for what they're saying right. without having to like never be skeptical about anything. Again. That's exactly right. And I think that, that actually, you know, the, the idea that you can grant someone the, the ability to know something without actually obeying even skepticism. I think that's one of the things that we're talking about. So the difference between saying that, you know, I doubt that Williams is an example of racism and saying that I doubt that Williams can testify to racism, which are two totally different things, right, is I think about that, what you're cashing out in the expertise point. I'm actually not giving her the benefit of the doubt of knowing enough about this that I can actually ask for normal level evidence and rely upon that. Because you can still say, well, why do you think that? Well, because of X, Y, and Z. But then what happens at that moment in a moment of epistemic oppression is that person imagines they have a meta-level ability to assess that evidence. Well, that's not good enough evidence. Well, wait a minute. You're not an expert on this. (laughs) How is it that the person who may experience this day in and day out can say these are the ways you would track those things? And that itself gets doubted. When we're talking about expert testimony, we ask them, they say X. We're like, well, why would you believe X? They give us some range of reasons for why they believe or some evidence for why they believe. We don't then say, why are those reasons? That's the expert part of that. (laughs) Those are reasons because the expert knows them to be reasons. And I'm not an expert enough to know whether those reasons are salient or not. That's what the expert knows. So if I give you a range of reasons now you may or may not be convinced, you don't have to be convinced every single time you hear about something. But I do think that there's something to be said about sometimes the ways in which we can not just doubt the information given, but doubt whether or not a person should or could give the information, which is very different. And the kinds of questions that you get about whether or not an evidence is conclusive, I think, and that's your Emily Dupree's point you were saying, when that evidence is conclusive seems to me a kind of doubting of whether or not any, the amount of evidence that has been marshaled by the person making the claim could ever satisfy the conditions for knowledge, mainly because we can't count them as an expert about their own experience. <laughs> and there's a certain degree, and I think it's complicated because I think there's a certain degree where we're going to say, well, sometimes I'm wrong about my experience, you know? Sometimes I'm wrong about my experience. But in this case, we're not just talking about whether I saw a pink elephant the other night. We're talking about what we, if you've acknowledged it, you know, these kind of systems of injustice that might exist. And presuming that there are systems of injustice, we're at that point now, presuming that there are systems of injustice, their manifestations should have regular features like anything else. Right. 
Now, I think that's the part that really shocks me sometimes when you, you know, a Williams example about the Soho shop is that people are imagining that she's not producing reasons that are not themselves patterns. Not patterns for them, of course, because they haven't experienced it, but patterns for the people who are, you know why they're salient to me? Because it happens over and over again. (laughs) So it may not seem like that's evidence, but those are the salient patterns, right? By which I recognize these kinds of things because every shut door is not racism, (laughs) but some of them are. So let's say we grant that this example we've been looking at from Patricia Williams, Mm -hmm. the incident in the Soho store, if we're willing to grant that that phenomenon happens a lot, it's kind of pervasive, an effect of people on a large scale not being able to report these incidents that happen to them, it seems like the large scale effect of that is it's kind of hard to learn about these instances, even if you're interested in learning more about them, because people have this strong incentive not to report them because they're not going to be believed. Right. I think that's right. So one of the longstanding, I think, philosophical problems in, for example, black feminist thought is the problem of unknowability. We've been wrestling with this for like 200 years in the United States particularly. I mean, just trying to figure out, identifying a particular kind of problematic, right? The idea that there are some propositions, for example, that we just don't know, and then there are some that are unknowable. Like the ones we just don't know are just things that we haven't yet come to know, right? The other day, someone told me that Pluto was a planet. And I said, no, I don't think it is (laughs) anymore. And then they were like, what? And then they were like, oh, now I know better. That's just something they didn't know. And now that they do, right? Unknowable stuff is stuff that should you try to testify to it or should you try to explain it? Should evidence come into view that would actually confirm some given understanding of the world there are relationships to that that actually make it so that the evidence doesn't take, so that the conclusions aren't drawn, you know, so that you can actually have these propositions that one should, could, and ought to know about the world that one can't know because the evidence for those propositions is denied because um, the ways in which we understand the world don't allow that to be true. This is one thing that Kimberly Crenshaw says a lot when you work with her, if the facts don't fit the frame, you forget the facts. You don't usually change the frame. The frame supports this, and that's what you're going to remember. Everything out of that is just, it's irrelevant, really. So those things kind of become unknowable. They can be presented to you over and over and over again. Now, why often do black women find this to be a problem? Because ultimately, we've been talking about race. We can talk about race and gender. The example of uh, Daniel Holtzclaw, the Oklahoma police officer who um, was forcing, you know, black women into any number of different acts of sexual violence who ended up going to prison. But one of the survivors in this context was asked why she didn't tell anyone. She was like, well, you know, I'm a black woman who would believe me. Right. Who would believe that this police officer was doing this to me to us to other people and the reality is is that man actually was actually forcing himself on for many black women unbelieved you know there was something unknowable about that there was something about which producing evidence or talking about it or trying to bring light to it 
there was resistance to that. Some of which is because this is a police officer. Some of which, you know, these are black women, you know, whose credibility have been somehow damaged. And this is institution of authority of the state. The ways in which our social roles can actually produce, you know, these actions about which it becomes difficult to tell other people about, they're not going to believe you. They're just not going to believe you. And it's a non-accidental not belief. You know, we can actually predict that they're not going to believe you. You can predict that the evidence that you can marshal for that is not going to be enough and that the preponderance of evidence is going to have to be extraordinary. It's going to have to be many numerous victims. Th- those are the kinds of things that feminist black women have been talking about as unknowable. There's also the kind of strange position of black women where most people use the term women and they imagine white women. And when most people use the term blacks, they imagine black men. And then there's black women, right? And the question of you know where we're situated with respect to women, when people talk about it, and they really do imagine white women, or you know blacks and the police, for example, and they usually imagine black men. Where's the uptake for what's happening to black women in any of these populations? Part of the unknowability around black women and police violence, which is getting much better right now because of some of the works by you know with Say Her Name and other things is precisely because the frameworks only frame in certain people. And if the framework doesn't fit the facts, you just forget those facts. So there's resistance to even the evidence. You can produce evidence after evidence, pieces of information, statistics, and all kind of stuff. It will just go in and there will be a question of relevance. Why do we have to know about this? So unknowability can just be those propositions, those positions, those parts of our world that literally are obscured to the degree where they're unknowable, that the production of evidence is not going to be enough. And I'm going to say this is another way in which epistemic oppression manifests, it's unknowability, that there are just some things that you can produce. And it's more than just whether or not you can produce a copious amount of evidence. It's also a question of whether or not that evidence would actually appear salient, right? Are we going to talk about police brutality and only talk about black men? This is serious because black men are experiencing large numbers of police brutality. But so are black women, right? What is the narrative by which we're all being counted? So are trans black women. So are trans black people in general, right? How do we understand these narratives so that, you know, everybody's being understood? So that the experience that we're all actually encountering at the hands of state violence is being brought to light and being made known, so that there can be some remedy, some redress, some understanding of the scope of the problem, right? So that people don't imagine that, you know, state violence against different populations is just this particular example. It just happened once or twice or, you know, and it's only just them and not all of them, you know? I mean, how do we get a robust understanding about what's happening in our social world? Because at the end of the day, that is the stakes of epistemic oppression, is our robust and full understanding of our social worlds, right? Do we have a good understanding of what's going on around us? Um, And arguably, you know, this is the epistemologist in me. I want to have a robust, accurate understanding of my social world. I think that's a better place when we all have that. I think we're actually better people, maybe, sometimes, when we all have that. When we all have all the information necessary. Which is not to say that, you know, morality is not important, because it is. Because you can know a whole bunch of terrible s***. And if you don't care, then, you know, but... If you don't know, you don't even know if you don't care. (laughs) If it never occurs to you that these things are happening, if it never becomes apparent that, you know, there's any number of different social injustices that are occurring for all different ranges of populations, then the morality point is part of the point, but not. we haven't gotten that far. (laughs) The problem hasn't presented itself. Okay, so this is starting to seem like a pretty vexing issue. You know, of course... 
the moment you become aware of oppression and various forms of injustice, your mind immediately wanders to like, how are we going to address them? Right. So what do you think are some of the strategies we might employ to enhance the visibility of these issues? Maybe, um, you know, getting more people into the conversation, is that a potential strategy? Or like going to the blackboard and writing, I'm going to believe my friends more 10,000 times. Is that a strategy? You know, that's a good question, because I think it's the question of whether or not something that is pervasive in the way this can be, I mean, pervasive at the level of broad scale kind of population pervasive can be handled at the level of the individual. I think the difficulty of answering that question is whether or not we're the kind of beings that can fix this. I'm not certain of that. I actually am not optimistic that we exist with respect to knowledge, either social or um, perceptual or any other form of testimonial, that we exist as the kind of beings that are really capable of knowing what we don't know. It's not clear (laughs) that we're good at that. I think that we tend to be bad at, you know, not knowing what we don't know. And that would be about the level about what we would actually have to learn to become capable of to track in the very end of our ability to understand the world and then an imagining of beyond of that. And what it would mean to live as beings with that at the front and not at the back of our comprehension. It strikes me that that would be, I mean, that's a whole other mode of existence than most of us. And I'm not certain that it's one that's desirable. (laughs) But I think this is one of the things that I imagine So thinking about this in terms of the individual, I'm not as optimistic as some other people. I think that Miranda Fricker, for example, is optimistic. She'll posit some virtues. You know, I think that Jose Medina, for example, is more optimistic than I, as he'll posit certain community structures. But I think that that's what we'll be looking at, either virtues at the individual level, certain kind of uh, compositions of epistemic communities, whereby diversity becomes a, a value, like so maybe even kind of virtue for communities. I actually err on the side of social and political change. So one of the things that I imagine is that the, some of the limits of our ability to understand what happens in our social world has a great deal to do with the organization of our social world. So I tend to think that maybe all of these virtues, robust epistemic communities, whereby we cultivate certain kinds of values, whereby we're being calibrated by other people because we shouldn't expect ourselves to calibrate ourselves. But also, I think worlds where Liz Anderson is going to say something like institutional virtues um, when she starts talking about this. I also think that some of this stuff has to be kicked out of social and political struggle. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, kind of Black Lives Matter kind of agitation where the actual political, social institutions change so that certain kinds of behaviors become more apparent. You know, I think that what's what happens with Black Lives Matter. You have Ferguson and the tragic death of Michael Brown. And you just have people saying, no, no, no more. You know what? We're going to protest this. This has to stop. We're dying, you know. We're dying. And I think now more than before Ferguson, before Black Lives Matter, which was started for Trayvon Martin. But before those, you know, that movement and its momentum, police brutality or state sanctions of violence against black people was not necessarily something anyone thought about. And you could talk about it. No one was like, oh, it can't be that pervasive. I think that that's actually there's some people who are probably going to resist that. But there's probably less naysayers than there were before Ferguson. And I think that those kinds of things end up actually cultivating awarenesses where the interpersonal thing doesn't. Right. So what's the role of social movements? You know, what are the roles of not just individual virtues, not just community virtues, but um, social movements? And I think that has a great deal to do with social organization. I mean, 
can you build a political, social and political structure where movements are the norm, not the exception, because those are needed for epistemic calibration? Would that change our understanding of democracy? Would we need something other than democracy? What is the best political system for epistemological ends? All of those, I think, would have to be considered. Christy Dotson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for asking me. It's been fun. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.